Good evening. The passage that we are looking at tonight is from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 4 to 16. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Apologies, I have to begin from passage six. Verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour? says the Lord of hosts, and now entreat the favour of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting in my name, setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say... What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Should I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. Thank you, Sukan, for reading for us. Uh, just a couple of things to um, help us as we go through. And we'll pray in a moment. We'll ask for the Lord's help. Um, there's a handout um, which may or may not help. You can take or leave this if you think it's helpful. Um, use it. If you don't, then just uh, tuck it under your chair. Um, it just gives you an idea of where we're going to go as we go through um, this sermon. Uh, and the particular thing that will help us is to have uh, this passage of God's Word open in front of us so we can see um, what it's saying. But let's pray as we come uh, to Malachi. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Lord God, as we hear those words and as we have this understanding of you as the great king of the nations, um, it humbles us that you would speak to us tonight through your word here uh, in this place. 
Lord, may we listen to what you have to say. And Lord, may your spirit convict us and change us and shape us that we might worship you with pure and holy reverence and awe. In Jesus' name, amen. So having returned from exile and rebuilt Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, well, things seemed to be looking up for God's people. Progress was being made. The glory days, they looked like they were coming back and they might soon be restored. But over the next few decades, well, everything just sort of petered out. Things plateaued. Economically, the nation wasn't really growing, just treading water. Politically, it hadn't broken free from the empire that had absorbed it. It had no king. It was just ruled by a governor. And it really became a bit of a non-entity, not a major player at all uh, on the world stage. And then spiritually, spiritually apathy had set in. The temple that they'd rebuilt, it wasn't as glorious as the one they'd had before. The priests were finding the ministry tedious And the people, well, the people had lost interest in worship. It's into this context that God speaks through his servant Malachi. Last week, we looked at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 of this opening chapter. And there we heard God tell his people, I have loved you. The people were doubting that, but it was true. God had loved them. He'd chosen them. He'd set his love upon them in spite of the fact that there was nothing particularly lovable about them. That's God's opening word to them in this book. I have loved you. And now God says in verses 6 to 14, but you don't love me. I have loved you, but you don't love me. In fact, you despise my name. God's name is, um, comes up a lot in this chapter. God's name is his person. It's the summation of his character. It's who he is. He is the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, as this translation puts it. To honour God's name is to honour God himself. To call on God's name for salvation is to call on God To praise his name is to praise him, and so on. And therefore, to despise his name is to despise him. It is to treat him with contempt. It is to treat him as if he's worthless. What we have in this section is a kind of back-and-forth courtroom prosecution. A courtroom prosecution between God and Israel, the priests and the people. There's a charge made, there are objections from the defence, there is evidence presented, and then there's a crushing verdict. So in your mind, picture the courtroom, God opens proceedings, verse 6, the accusation. Verse 6, a son honours his father and a servant his master. Everyone listening would have agreed with God's opening statement. It was a son's duty to honour his father. It was true both in the culture of the day, but also in the command of God's law. 
And it was a given that servants would fear their masters. They owed them respect and reverence as those placed over them in authority. Everyone would be nodding their heads at this. But here comes the punch. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. God has loved them. He's chosen them from nothing. He's been a father to them. And he's their great king, their lord and master. But they have not honoured him and they have not feared him. Now notice who the first accusation is aimed at. It's aimed at the priest's. Uh, The priests were the most privileged people in Israel. They're ones who stood closest to God. They mediated between God and the people with their prayers and with their sacrifices. And God says they have despised his name. Now, when this accusation's made, you might expect the priests, well, to sort of, I guess, tremble with fear and beg for mercy. But they don't do that at all. Instead, a hand goes up from the defense. Objection! End of verse 6. But you say, how have we despised your name? You accuse us of this God, but how have we? I mean, after all, don't we praise you in the temple? Don't we go through all the rituals you require? Don't we make sacrifices? The priests are outraged that God might accuse them like this. But God has evidence to present, verse 7 to verse 9. By offering polluted food upon my altar. There's another objection. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? At the heart of Israel's worship in the Old Testament was sacrifice. God required sacrifices for all sorts of things, for thanksgiving, for uh, making a vow, and of course for atoning for sins. The people chose the animals, and they brought them to the priests, and the priests made the sacrifices. They presented them to God. But the priest was supposed to be responsible for a kind of quality control um, of sorts. They were to only allow fit, healthy animals to be sacrificed, those without defect, without blemish. There were very specific laws telling them not to sacrifice blind or lame or sick animals. Why did that matter? Well, it mattered because God is holy, because he's worthy of honor and fear. You don't give him your worst, you give him your best. But that's not what they're doing. They're offering polluted offerings. It shows just what they think of God, doesn't it? They despise him. Now the Lord makes his point really clear by an example full of sarcasm. It's in uh, the end of verse 8. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Try offering that one-eyed, three-legged, mangy old goat as a gift for the local governor. 
Go on, try it. See what reaction you'll get. Now, of course, you wouldn't dare to do that, would you? But that's what you offer me. If you gave that to your governor, do you think he would then do you a favour? No way. Do you really think then that I will now help you? Why do you think you can presume on my kindness when you despise my name in this way? It's a scathing rebuke. The damning evidence against the priests is quite literally laid out on the table. And so here comes God's verdict, verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. It's an astonishing statement. It would be better to shut the doors of the temple and put out the flames on the altar than to carry on with this worthless worship. It's astonishing. Remember, the priests are actually offering sacrifices. They're going through the full range of religious activity, but it's a kind of careless, going through the motions, bare minimum religious activity. And it is deeply offensive to a holy God. He's chosen them. He loves them. He deserves their full devotion as their father and as their master. And he should be honored and feared. But he's despised. And so his verdict is this. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hands. Now here's where we must pay attention. Here's the principle applied to us. A church that is full of religious activity, religious worship, but which doesn't love and honour God as holy, might as well turn the lights off and shut the doors. In fact, it would be better if some government official turned up and shut it down than for that church to continue its worship. Why? Well, at least then there's no way to kid ourselves that everything's fine with God, when in reality he sees our worship as utterly worthless. One commentator puts it like this. It is better to be speechless than to blaspheme. It is preferable to experience the agonies of being far away from God than to deceive oneself by assuming that God will listen to the appeals of a hypocrite. This kind of religious hypocrisy, both then and now, is something that God will not stand for. God's verdict on Israel's priests here is really clear. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now that might be enough. We might want that to be enough. But there's more evidence that the Lord wants to present. And it's in verse 12 and verse 13. Now verse 12 and 13, at first you might think, well this is just more of the same, isn't it? But there are some differences. Notice that the, difference, the main difference here is it's no longer just evidence against the priests but also the people. 
Just look at verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. The priests and the people, they've agreed that this whole sacrifice palaver is wearisome. Same thing, again and again, it's so boring. It's a headache, it's hard work, it's tedious. See, because they despise God and they despise the altar, well, they've lost the sense of awe and wonder and joy in their worship. They've lost sight of the tremendous privilege that they have to worship and serve God in this way. Now, as Christians, we have much more cause for awe and wonder and joy in our worship, much more than these Old Covenant believers. Primarily because we don't have to offer sacrifices in this way anymore. Jesus Christ has offered a perfect sacrifice for us. The Apostle Peter writes in in 1 Peter 1 verse 19 that we have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What an amazing thing. Jesus Christ, the unblemished lamb of God, sacrificed to pay for our sins once and for all to put us right with the holy God. So we don't need to offer animal sacrifices in our worship anymore. But Peter goes on to say this in chapter 2, that we have been built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, we do still offer sacrifices of sorts, spiritual ones, That is, lives that are given over to the worship and service of God, to his honour and glory. But as we serve God, can't we express the same sentiment as these old covenant people? Oh, not church again. Can I have a week off? Not another prayer meeting. Is it really necessary? Not serving in creche again, not cleaning again. That's the third time this week. We snort at it. Perhaps a better translation, we sigh at it. <sighs> this is so wearisome. Do you ever feel like that? I can feel this attitude creep into my heart sometimes. Not another pastoral visit, not another talk to prepare, not another elders' meeting. What a weariness this is. We're just as guilty. When we stop seeing how wonderful and worthy God is of wholehearted love and devotion, well, this comes far too easily to us, doesn't it? We start to resent serving him. We start to resent him. We start to give him less than our best. Oh, we still serve. We still go through the motions, But it's because we ought to, not because we love him. We begin to say his worship is wearisome. Have you seen this in yourself? 
Will you love and serve him as you once did, as he deserves? Now there's one final piece of evidence. It's the second part of verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? This again is something slightly new. You bring what has been taken by violence. So imagine you've got a flock of sheep and you have one, let's call him Fluffy. And Fluffy is a lamb without blemish or defect. He's perfect. And so you set Fluffy aside for the sacrifice. But then one night, a wolf gets in among the flock. And you chase it off. But one of the other poor lambs, let's call him Scruffy, he's been savaged. What do you do? Well, poor old Scruffy, he didn't have much use before. He's pretty useless then, but now he's entirely useless. No one's going to eat him. Uh, the meat's been corrupted by the wolf's fangs. The blood has soaked and ruined the wool. You know that you should get rid of it. You should just throw it to the dogs. But hang on a minute. What if I just switch Scruffy with Fluffy, whom I've dedicated to the Lord? I mean, if it's going to die anyway, well, I might as well give God the one that's already a goner. At least then I could make a tasty profit on the healthy one. Makes practical sense. But God says to his people, you are cheating me with cheap offerings. You are giving me only that which costs you nothing, which is worthless in my sight. God gets the leftovers, he gets the dregs, and you keep back what is best for yourself. And I think we can do this too, whether it's our giving, or our prayer life, or our devotional time in the Bible. Don't we so often give to God what's left over? Just a token amount, just enough to, to stop us feeling too guilty, but... Never the best of our time to pray. Or never an amount of money that we'll actually miss. Or never the full attention of our minds and our hearts as we read his word. Oh, how we need the unblemished sacrifice of Jesus to pay for our sins, even our religious ones. Our sins of half-hearted devotion. So do you see, in the court, the evidence is stacked up, stacked up against priest and people, and we're beginning to realise that the problem isn't actually the sacrifices, that they're just the symptoms. The, The problem is the hearts of the people, isn't it? Until their hearts are changed, well, there's no hope. And the final verdict is terrifying. Verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Cursed. To be cursed is to be cut off by death. Those who willfully cheat God with cheap offerings 
will eventually fall under the great king's eternal judgments. The Lord's verdict isn't just that he won't accept the polluted offerings. It's that he won't accept those who offer them either. Because the offerings simply reveal the wickedness of their hearts. It's a severe warning to us, isn't it? Those whose lives are outwardly full of religious activity and service, but who are inwardly self-serving, well, they despise the name of the Lord and will find themselves under his judgment. Now, it's all been pretty serious. And it is a serious message. It's one of those passages that just is like that. Israel's problem, of course, is that they don't think this is a big deal. But it is a big deal for God. Malachi is sent to wake them up to that. Why? Why does this matter so much to God? We might think, well, it's for his people's sake. Indeed, later on in the letter, God will make his appeal to them to return to him in repentance. If we see this attitude in ourselves, that's what we need to do. We need to, we need to turn in repentance to God, to be sorry for the way that we've treated him. And we need to look to Jesus as our perfect sacrifice for forgiveness. So it is for his people's sake. But that's not the reason he gives in chapter 1, is it? The reason he gives in chapter 1 is found in verse 11 and verse 14. And we turn now to our final section. Here's the reason why this matters. Verse 11, verse, in fact, let's start in verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 14 at the end, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. See, there's this despicable chain reaction going on that God wants to break. It started with the priest. The priest despised God's name, and that led the people of Israel to despise God's name. And when the people of God despise God's name, well, then what will the nations do? You see, what's at stake is God's greatness in the nations. God's plan was always for Israel to be a light to the nations, that the temple would be a house of prayer to all nations. It would be a place where people from all over the earth could come and they could speak with God, they could come and worship him. He's worthy to be king not only over Israel, but over the whole earth, by over every peoples. And now that's at risk. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that, that if the people of God won't honour God as their father or fear him as their master and king, if they're offering polluted sacrifices as if it, it doesn't really matter, and if they're openly saying that the worship of God is, is boring and serving him is wearisome, well then why on earth would anyone else want to turn to the Lord in faith? The despising of God's name by God's people 
will prevent the nations from worshipping God as he deserves. And God's not going to let that happen. Notice in verse 11, when he speaks about his worship in all the nations of the earth, he speaks with absolute confidence. He says that it will happen. He's going to do something about this. Through the great sacrifice of his son, he will shut the doors and put out the lights on the old sacrifice system located in the temple. It won't be needed. And he will begin then to gather and purify for himself a people from all the nations, a people who will offer pure offerings, not polluted ones. Earlier on, we referred to Peter's first letter, which said that Christians are now all priests. We are priests who offer our lives as spiritual sacrifices to God, acceptable through Jesus Christ. This is what he goes on to say. He says in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, verse 10, that we as Christians today are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. God's desire is to have his name honoured and feared in all the nations of the earth. And how will he do it? He will do it through local churches that proclaim his excellencies. As we gather together to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the unblemished lamb, and as we pray and as we sing and as we serve one another, not hypocritically, not in that bored or sort of weary or half-hearted way, but with joyful, wholehearted devotion, as we do that and as churches throughout the world do that, well, God's name is held to be great. As we, as a church, live out pure lives in our communities, as we proclaim his excellencies out there, well, that's how the nations know that the Lord is the only true God, that he's worthy of worship, that his name is great. My name will be great among the nations. So how does this leave us? A couple of questions just as we close. First, for those who would not yet think of themselves as Christians, have you considered that there is a God in heaven who is the great king of all the earth and who deserves your worship? I'm sorry if the people of God have not always shown that to you. I'm sorry if we've not lived lives that made you think that he is worthy of everything that we've got. Because that really is what he's worth. You need to know that you'll never find a Christian who perfectly lives in the fear and honour of God's name. We've all failed in that regard. There's only one man who ever did that, and his name is Jesus. So can I encourage you, would you look at him In him, as you look at him in the scriptures, in the gospels, you will see someone who loves God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind 
and all his strength. In Jesus, you'll see what a God-honoring, God-fearing life really looks like. And of course, in him, you'll come to see that he is the lamb without blemish, the one who made the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins. And if you are a Christian here tonight, this is a challenging passage, isn't it? Speaking to myself as well. Have we been giving the Lord our second best? Have we lost our former joy in worship and service? Are we honouring him as our father as we used to, with wholehearted love and devotion? Do we fear him as the holy God that he is? Brothers and sisters, let's return to him with all our hearts and let us proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, as we've read and thought about this passage before us, we are um, humbled before you. We're convicted of our lack of devotion to you. And so we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for you to change us by your spirit that we might love you with all of our being, heart, soul, mind and strength and that we might proclaim you to the nations. Forgive us, we pray. Change us, we pray. That we might give you the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.